Will you turn with me now, please, to the New Testament, to the Epistle, epistle to the Ephesians, and chapter 3, the passage that we looked into this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, and reading again uh, at verse 17. From the middle of verse 17, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now as part of a little series of studies on knowing God or the knowledge of God by us, we were looking this morning at knowing the love of Christ as we extracted that particular element from this uh, wonderfully uh, enlarged uh, passage that we have here where there are so many elements that as we saw tied together we've dealt with this one of the love of Christ as it fits into our uh, studies at the moment particularly. And this morning you remember that we looked at the love of Christ as it can be seen by us as it is revealed to us and we thought of it particularly in terms of the love of Christ in his condescension to us the love of Christ in his sufferings for us and the love of Christ in his continued ministry toward us even as he ministers from heaven to his church on earth and that was quite deliberate that we began with that because this evening I want to try and look at the matter of knowing Christ in terms of that experience of it in the way that it would be a subject by which in our minds and hearts we would enter more and more into as we would go through this life of faith. Because the Apostle is telling us here that it is being rooted and grounded, he says, in love. And it is in that situation, in that, in that state, that we are in the position then to be able to comprehend, he puts it, what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. Now you can see that he actually puts it here by way of a seeming contradiction. Because he describes on the one hand this love of Christ as something that actually passes knowledge. By which he means something that is beyond the capacity of knowledge. Our knowledge that is. And yet at the same time in verse 18 he's been talking in terms of dimensions to this love that we are able, he says, to comprehend. And indeed that being rooted and grounded in love, you might then be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And you notice he emphasizes that this is something that all saints have the privilege of entering into. He's not suggesting for a moment that this is something that's all very well for himself as an apostle or for some particular individuals such as the Apostle Paul with his great mind and his understanding of spiritual things well it's fine you might say for him to be able to enter into something of the knowledge of the love of Christ and its breadth and length and depth and height no he says 
that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Aren't you glad tonight that he included these words with all saints? Because that tells you that this is something for you. That this is something for every single Christian, for every individual, for everybody that has Christ Jesus as their saviour. Whatever comparisons they may make between themselves and others, whatever comparisons they may have in, in comparing themselves with others that they know in the church now or in the church in the past, and none of us would dare to put ourselves beside the Apostle Paul for abilities, for understanding, for many things. And yet he is telling us with the authority of God, here is something for every Christian to enter into with the capacity, whatever it is, that God has given to them individually. That capacity, my dear friends, can be filled with the knowledge of the love of Christ. And what it means is that on the one hand, there is something that is so great that ultimately it passes knowledge beyond our ability to take it all in and yet it is something that we can comprehend in what is the breadth and length and depth and height we can enter into increasingly more and more we can engage in our minds and our hearts with this wonderful subject of subjects the love of Christ in such a way as comprehends according to whatever abilities God has given us of the breadth and length and depth and height of it. And as we said this morning to be able to know this is the most heavenly thing on earth the most soul refreshing experience you can have when the Lord brings this matter about in our souls, even though it be the briefest glimpses of it, even though we may say it is little compared to what others in the past have experienced of it, yet to know the love of Christ is a transforming heavenly experience. And there will be nothing better for you and I this evening than to actually experience the things of which we speak even as we speak of them. There is nothing that I can say that can ever compare to the Lord coming into your own heart tonight and enlarging in that heart of yours your knowledge of his own presence brought near to you. His own blessed words being spoken to you. His own power touching you. His own spirit working within you. I pray that you will know it. That together we will know it. That we will be led by him as we contemplate these things. So that tonight we can say with greater conviction than ever before. That to know the love of Christ is indeed for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's a knowing 
the love of Christ we can divide into two headings this evening. First of all, to look, about, uh, to look upon it as something of an evaluation that is particularly using the mind. An evaluation of his love through the use of your mind. And secondly, an admiration of his love laying more emphasis upon the use of the heart. That's to say, especially your affections. Now we're not to say that in saying it, in, in putting it like that, in, in distinguishing these two particular areas, I don't want to suggest that they are entirely separate from each other or that you can neatly compartmentalize, if you like, these aspects of the thing in such a way as fits them neatly into these two areas. Because there is, of course, an interrelation, there's a crossing over. But it's for our uh, benefit, I think, that we can put it this way, that this knowing of the love of Christ, this comprehending with all the saints of these things, that it engages, that it involves an engagement of our minds to the evaluation of his love, an engagement of our heart to the admiration of it or the appreciation. Before we come on to look at these two things specifically, there is something that we need to say as a preliminary because it applies to both of the areas that I've just mentioned. And that is this, that the matter of knowing his love is directly related to returning that love in our love to him. If we say that we know this love but do not return that love to him, then we're deluding ourselves that we know this love, that we comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height of it, because this knowing of his love surely is immediately and directly and consequentially related to the returning of love to him in turn and to his person in particular, his person as well as his actions. I mentioned this morning something of his person as we sought uh, to enter a little into this, this glorious subject of the love of Christ through his divine nature, through his human nature, through him as the God-man incarnate. And it is as you find your love going out to him, to his person, that you find there, in fact, something that is an evidence for yourself that you are indeed a real, true, living Christian. Because there are few, if any, greater evidences to your soul if you look at it from that perspective and ask yourself the questions in examining yourself, though we can say, of course, we can do too much of that inward looking. That's why we're saying, uh, to begin with, we looked at the love of Christ objectively and looked at it in such a way as our hearts and our minds could go out to. Yet it is true that in looking for the evidences inwardly, that love to him, to his person, is a great evidence to you that you are indeed saved, that you are one of his people, one of his children, on the right way to heaven. That doesn't mean that if you love him for what he has done, 
Now there's something wrong with that. I'm not suggesting that at all. But loving him for what he has done, loving him for his actions, loving him for all that he has performed is not such a high step as loving him for his person and for his own sake. It is a very, almost certainly the case that no unregenerate soul can love the Lord Jesus Christ for his own sake, can love him for his person. And the more you and I advance in knowing him and loving him in return, the more you will find that your love goes out to him as he is in his person. The more you will admire and evaluate uh, the person of the Lord, his deity, his humanness as it was for you, a humanness that led him into the work of salvation. You will admire his power. You will admire all the things that are revealed of his person as well as the things that he has done as a person for you. And the more your love grows, the more you will admire that person. That doesn't mean you will neglect the things he has done, the doings, the performances, all the actings of the person and of the nature. You will love him more and more for himself and all that he is. Because you can only explain what he has done in the highest analysis through understanding something of who he is, his person. We have to distinguish between the existence of faith and a thriving faith. And while it may be true that living upon the things that he has done without going much into the admiring and enjoyment of his person will be an evidence to you of faith yet it is evidence of thriving faith to go beyond that to love him for his own sake you know you and I have made great progress spiritually when we are able to say even in a measure that we love God for what is true of himself. Supposing he had done nothing for us at all, we must love him for what he is. Love him because he's God. Because he is beautiful in holiness. I know that you cannot do that without your heart being brought to life by the Holy Spirit. I know that it is impossible without it being a regenerate heart. But isn't it that regenerate heart advancing that says, I love the Lord. Yes, I love him because he has heard my prayers, but I also love him for all that I find in himself to be true of his person. And so let us look firstly at the evaluation of this love of Christ with the mind. Now you notice he uses here in verse 18 the word comprehend. And that's a word which itself involves the idea of using the mind, but it also includes in it something of an earnestness. There's an emphasis in the word that has to do with an earnest use of the mind. An, a, a, an earnestness, a kind of energetic working of the mind. 
Indeed, you'll find frequently in the scriptures that the use of the mind is one of the great privileges of the Christian. You've heard me mention many times of how the humanist, for example, will accuse the Christian of failing to use their mind and will suggest to you that it is those who look at things not in a scriptural fashion but with human reason that are really using human reason as it ought to be used in its greatest extent that that is the human reason set free from any of its religious entrapments. And you can say with conviction that that is sure and certain evidence that that mind has never been set free from, from that which more than anything else confines it and that is the darkness of sin. It is your greatest privilege and mine in this world to be given a mind that is enlightened. What did the Apostle say in Romans chapter 12 when he was considering the matter of not being conformed to this world? How is it specifically to be worked out, this non-conformity to this world? Where are we distinguished from this world? In this he says, by the renewing of your minds that you may know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. And that is not a once-for-all matter that happens and that's it. It is an ongoing matter where that mind, once having been enlightened, comes more and more to take in of the glories of redemption of Jesus Christ and of his love and of his grace. That is a mind that is worth calling. A mind that is expanding and using its faculties in the right way. Oh, pity. Pity the humanist and the atheist. The fool who says in his heart there is no God. Pity them, my dear friends. Pray for them, because they lack that which is the privilege of the Christian, the mind that is able to know, to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ. Count yourself privileged tonight if your mind is among those that is able to comprehend the love of Jesus. And in saying that, we acknowledge in the very fact that he says here that you may be able to comprehend that there is necessarily, while of course we know that we are dependent on the Spirit of God, yet there is a necessity of using, of engaging our minds in applying our minds to this love of Christ as it is revealed to us, as the aspects of it that are revealed to us are made known to our souls. We need to engage this mind meaningfully to stir up as our responsibility, though we must be dependent on the Spirit of God. Yet it is our mind that must be stirred up. It is our soul that must be stirred up, though we need the help, the aid of the Spirit of God to do so and are dependent on His ministry from day to day. Yet our minds, even as Christians, are so corrupt 
still have so much corruption along with that which God has created in the soul. Things which we can all too easily find interfere with our communion with Christ and our knowing of his love. We have to, because of that, because there are so many things that obstruct us, we have to seek to apply our minds earnestly, sincerely, constantly in this matter of knowing. That is why he's saying that you may be able to comprehend. And that means that it must involve firstly what we can call particularities. And I'm using the word specifically in reference to the things of the love of Christ. If you and I want to enter more and more into the comprehending with all saints what is the breadth, breadth and length and depth and height to know this love increasingly, then we have to go further than to know it in a generalized fashion. Unfortunately, there are some people who are satisfied enough, it seems, with knowing something in general about the love of Christ. And yet, my friends, this Bible is so rich in its details of it. That again is why we began this morning by looking at it in its, uh, as in its objectiveness, looking at Christ in his condescension, in his natures, in his person, in his sufferings, in his ministry. These are all the particularities of it. It's no use for us just saying, or at least it's little use for us saying, well, to know the love of Christ, to know that he gave himself for me, that he died. And that's it without really entering much more into it than that. That is not how Paul would have it. But we have to know something of the breadth of it, and the length of it, and the depth of it, and the height of it. Why is he using these words? Why is he speaking there in terms of these dimensions of things, as if it was some kind of square or cuboid or something like that? So that we can say, there is this aspect to it, and that aspect to it, and this element to it, and that feature of it, and that feature of it, and these details of it. That's why you can admire it in his person, in his nature, in his graces, in his work, in all the details given you. Not only has God brought us into contact with a rich vein of gold in this love of Christ, but he has given to you that vein of gold as he has fashioned it into individual nuggets of gold. He hasn't left you to come to this vein of gold of the love of Christ and his love in it and having to dig for yourself to fashion these nuggets for yourself as if you could do it in any case or I could do it. He has brought them out for you in his word. He has fashioned them by his workings in Christ. Not only can Paul say, he loved me and gave himself for me. He can say, I must know what is the breadth and length and depth and height of it. And so you come to comprehend something of his person, of his way, of his power of the graces that he was fitted with in his humanity by the Holy Spirit in order to be the equipped saviour of sinners. You admire him, you evaluate him, 
in all that he has done for you. You look at the specifics of that, the particularities of it. And you see in every aspect of it, the love of Christ your Savior that passes knowledge. So it must involve particularities, this evaluation. It must also result in partings. Partings, separations. Because to know the love of Christ must involve these partings. To evaluate this love as we must by the mind, to comprehend the breadth and length and depth and height of it, must involve these partings. What, is it, what do we mean by these partings? Well, we mean this, that there are things which we need more and more to engage our minds against, to hate with vehemence, to be separate from. You remember that principle in the parable in Matthew 13, verse 45, where we find an account of the merchant man who was looking for precious pearls. And having found the pearl of great price, what did he do? He went and sold all that he had so that he could possess it. That's the principle of evaluating the love of Christ. When you find it, it results in partings so that you can enter more fully into the evaluation and appreciation of it. If you and I want to know being rooted and grounded in love, having been brought into contact with this pearl of great price, this inestimable jewel, then what are you going to do if you want to know the breadth and length and depth and height of this love of Christ? You're going to part with things which are naturally dear to your heart, dear to yourself. You must part with your sins. You and I know that we love sin naturally. And even when we're brought by the Spirit of God, alive by His regenerating power, it hasn't got rid of sin from our lives, has it? The New Testament, as you know, is full of this emphasis that we wrestle with this thing, with this flesh that still we find within ourselves. We know the Spirit is greater than the flesh. We know that His power is greater than the power of sin. But the power of sin is still there. And the power of sin has much in it that is able not only to spoil matters in relation to our own life, but also to spill out and spoil in the lives of others. You must give up your corruption, all of it, to be put to death. To evaluate the love of Christ, we must give up our righteousness. The righteousness that we imagine that is so dear to us, that is our own child in this world as we are in our sins, this righteousness of our own. What did the Apostle say as we saw last time in our studies in Philippians 3? What did he say? The things which were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. Including what? Including that righteousness of my own which is of the law. That I might 
gain Christ, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which is of the law. Yes, we have a self-righteousness, but in the eyes of God it is not righteousness. It is not righteousness that will meet his demands. But here is the righteousness in Christ that we require, that he requires. The righteousness of Jesus. And you must part, and I must part with that righteousness of our own. And say that it is but done that we may win Christ and be found in him. That means you sacrifice your peace and your comfort as we normally consider them. That we would even sacrifice all aspects of self that lies behind not only our own righteousness which is as filthy rags but every other way in which we are opposed to the righteousness that is in Christ and find something which obstructs the love of Christ flooding into our souls you can always trace it to this horrid thing that you must call self self in all its forms the Lord told us is something that we must deny if we would be his disciples and so to evaluate his love we need to be prepared to follow him the son of man has not he said where to lay his head to the person who said lord i will follow thee wheresoever thou goest i will follow you whatever it means is what he was saying the man didn't of course know what he was saying and the Lord turned to him and said look at the birds of the air they have their nest look at the foxes they have the holes in the ground that they can hawk all their homes but the son of man he does not have a place to lay his head he's really saying if you want to follow me then you must be a partaker of my sufferings you must bear my reproach And isn't that again what Philippians 3 taught us last time? And I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. How can we say that we are willing to know his love, to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height how dare we say that we are indeed in a place where we can evaluate the love of Christ if we're not prepared to follow him in every way that he would have us to follow him. Whatever it means for us, I know that this is difficult to say, but it's the demand of Christ. If his love to us was a love that led him to such sufferings, are we going to say that it's possible to evaluate his love and deny the matter of following him into whatever sufferings it will mean for us. It must result in partings. If thine right eye offend thee, cut it off. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. Oh, my friends, there is a severity in love as well as a sweetness, a severity towards all that is contrary to it. 
You say of it as the psalmist said of God's enemies. You say of every single thing that hinders your progress in the comprehending of the love of Christ. Do not I hate it, Lord, that hates thee. You don't hate your enemies. You love them. But you hate everything that is opposed to your Lord in its workings, in its essence. And while you pray even for those who persecute you, the Lord said, you hate every aspect of what makes them your enemies. The sin, the enmity itself, the opposition to God, the rejection of holiness, the hatred of love, an evaluation by the mind then, comprehending the earnest application of the mind must involve particularity. Study the love of Christ. Study it in his person. Study everything about him that you can read about him in the scriptures or in the good books that you can find written on him. Study every facet of his love to you. You can never be a loser by that. And it must result in parting. Part with everything that obstructs your progress in the love of Christ. Say to it, be done with you. All your corruption, not just a little of it here and there. But be determined, even from this time forth, set your mind to comprehend his love. And so set your mind to be rid of every corruption that you find in yourself. Pray to the Lord every day, Lord, separate me from sin. Lord, say with McChain of old, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. To know the love of Christ. Secondly, an admiration by the heart. Now we're saying that because there's always a danger, as we've said throughout our studies, that we would see these things as a mental or intellectual thing only. The knowledge of God, knowing God, we've said repeatedly and necessarily, involves the mind but is much more than a mental or intellectual activity itself. And it's as necessary to admire the love of Christ with the work of our affections, with our heart, with our uh, emotional side of us, if you like as well as with the mind that evaluates and contemplates and takes in mentally. There has to be along with evaluation and admiration. Not only must you take into your mind to evaluate, but there must come out from your heart in love to him. And in that way, it's a an accompanying, if you like, to put it this way, accompanying thoughts of his love must be the tasting of his love. When you have, let's say, a recipe for some dish or other that you've never actually prepared before, but you like the picture of it as you see it on your recipe card, when you look at it in its finished state as it is pictured on the recipe card, you look at it, its colors, you look at its 
accompaniments. You look at all that it is as the complete thing and your mind is able to focus on it and to take things in and you evaluate it through that which you see in that recipe card and you say, well, it looks delicious, I must do it. But you cannot truly evaluate it completely. You cannot truly appreciate it. You cannot say this is definitely what it is like without tasting it, without actually making out that recipe for yourself and then sitting down to eat it. It is then that you are able to say, I now know it in the complete sense of knowing it. What I was once able to see and to evaluate with my mind, I can now taste of it, and I'm now in a position to say, this is what I think of it in its completeness. And that is how it is spiritually with us as well. If so be, said Peter in his first epistle and in chapter 2, if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. The graciousness of the Lord, the love of Christ, is not just something that you take in mentally, but you also admire, you appreciate with your heart. You taste it. It goes down deeply into your soul. It's an experience without which experience we do not truly know in this biblical definition of the knowledge in its completeness of the love of Christ, of the breadth and length and depth and height. And it is by that tasting of it, by that admiration through tasting of it, that we come to comprehend fully what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know it as the love which passes knowledge. As a matter of fact, it's true to say that unless we go as far as tasting, unless we go so far as the workings of the heart in its affections, we will soon lose what there is in it, what there is of it in the mind. What we take into our minds of biblical truth that fails to go through to the affections will soon be lost from the mind. You will find that you will retain much more in your comprehending of things if you have them go through to your heart so that they move you inwardly in your affections than if that is not the case. And if you want to retain in your mind an evaluation of Christ and his love, Oh, let you and I be open in our hearts to the tasting of them. You remember he said in John chapter 6. You remember how he himself said there, I am the true bread which came down from heaven. Whosoever eats of this bread shall live forever. I am the bread which came down from heaven. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. But then he went on in that same chapter to develop the thing where he says, I am the bread of life. 
This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You partake of Christ crucified and risen by a true saving experience, by faith of him, as he then enters deep down into your soul, including your heart and its affections. You know, there are some people that say that passage in John chapter 6 has primarily to do with the Lord's Supper. It's John's way, they tell us, of presenting in his own mystic kind of way his teaching on the Lord's Supper. What do we say to that? We say this, it is not primarily to do with the Lord's Supper at all. It is to do with that which the Lord's Supper is emblematic of. It is to do primarily with the spiritual partaking of Christ on the part of his people by faith. Whoever believes in me, whoever takes me, whoever comes to me, whoever eats of this bread. And unless we have done it, the Lord's Supper is meaningless. It is on that that the Lord's Supper is based. And it is on this that we will profit from his supper that we know what it is to taste of the Lord is gracious. And so you admire him in the heart of love that goes out to him. Oh, how precious should every means be to you and to me this evening where the Lord Jesus Christ presents himself not only to our minds but also to our hearts. How we should be like Bartimaeus sitting in his blindness hearing that Jesus of Nazareth was coming close to him, how we should cry out to say, O oh, Jesus, thou son of David, remember me, have mercy upon me. Look upon me, Jesus, thou son of David, as thou dost pass by, as thou dost draw near. How we should come to the gospel, to our reading of the Bibles, longing to meet with Christ himself. How we should come to hear the gospel preached, yes, how we should come to preach it as well, longing that above all things it will be the Saviour himself that we taste of. What a profitable service tonight it would be for you and me if the Saviour has indeed come to draw near to us, if we have tasted anew that he is gracious. Oh, what an emptiness, if that has not been the case. We very soon go to our supermarkets, don't we? Whenever our cupboards begin to run down their stock of food, we do it as of second nature almost. It's automatic to us, it's spontaneous. We say, I need to go and get this or that, I need to go to the shop, I'm short of this. It's something that you do automatically, but oh, friends, spiritually, how is it with us? Are we as ready, are we as quick to see the running down of the stocks of grace in our soul so that we will then go to the means by which our soul can be replenished? Or are we as concerned tonight to be nourished by Christ and his love as we are to have something to eat? Tomorrow for our bodies. 
Are we like the spouse in the Song of Solomon? As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Have we come this evening to this meeting with this prayer and with this desire that, he then, that she then mentions? He brought me to the banqueting house. Notice what she says, not just where I can get a meager meal, but to the banqueting house. And his banner over me was love. And you remember even after she lost him, in the sense of his presence, as he withdrew himself from her in chapter 5, what did she do? She went out after him with quickened agitated soul maybe tonight this is what you like here that you can look back over your life and you say well I know I'm not what I used to be in terms of my love for the Lord and my seeking of him and my earnestness in mind and heart after him well my friend look at, look at what she says I sought him but I could not find him I called him but he gave me no answer the watchmen that went about the city. She's gone outside. She's gone to look for him, wherever he can be found. They smote me. They wounded me. But what did she do? She went on. She kept on. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved Ted.